Uh, good afternoon. Uh, yeah, my name is Chad Johnson uh, from Regina. Um, and Kelly's right. I don't know too many people here. As a matter of fact, I, uh, I guess, got the uh, invitation from Kevin that I met, who I met years ago at a Bible study in Regina. And what had happened was, uh, I think some of you are familiar with uh, Aaron Cross. I think he has spoke here before. And anyway, Aaron and I meet every Monday morning. And uh, a couple weeks or three weeks back, uh, we were uh, discussing things. Um, I'm kind of going through uh, the doctrines of grace with Aaron. And an article came to mind uh, entitled The Triumph of Arminianism. And for some reason, from years ago, Kevin uh, popped into my head. And I told Aaron, I'm sending Kevin that article. And so Aaron and I were kind of chuckling as I texted Kevin this article entitled The Triumph of Arminianism, which um, is, is quite a poor article and actually speaks quite the opposite. And so Aaron and I were uh, kind of enjoying that. And then Kevin called me and we uh, began uh, talking over the phone at uh, different times. And uh, through that, it appears it's earned me, that little joke has earned me uh, pulpit duty here this Sunday. So I was kind of nervous about making the drive early. I don't like getting up early, so... I mentioned that to Kevin, and he said he'd push back your service time till 4 o'clock in the afternoon for me, so that was nice. Uh, I'm just going to open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you with uh, hearts of worship. Uh, we come before you humbly. We thank you, God, for all the things that you have taught us in your word, all the encouragements, all the rebukes, all the many ways that you guide us through your word and your spirit. And I just pray that uh, you would do that through me today and that your congregation would be blessed as we meet here this afternoon. In your name we pray. Amen. So Kevin asked if I would specifically speak to uh, a movement that I do have some experience with. Um, I don't know if I'm calling it by the right name. Uh, some people refer to it as uh, a Hebrew roots movement. There, there's a movement uh, abroad um, in which it seems the church is being enticed to go back to the Mosaic Covenant, to go back uh, to a focus on the Old Covenant law and use it in a way that is not in spirit and not in truth and not right. Uh, I had shared with Kevin that I do have some experience uh, years ago, I was asked to go for lunch with uh, a fellow who is an elder at a church uh, in the area uh, where they are doing this thing. 
And my friend asked me to meet him because he said, Chad, you know the Old Testament and like to study it, and uh, so does this fella, and so it'd be great if you guys got to know each other. As we began having lunch, uh, it became apparent to me that there was a unhealthy focus on the Old Covenant and on the Mosaic Law. And so I didn't talk a whole lot over that lunch hour. I just asked a lot of questions. And uh, ended up entering into a bit of a confrontation with uh, this elder. Um, I believe he was teaching his congregation error. And so I did speak to that. about a year and a half later, I ran into a, some other young fellows uh, that go to the same church, and they invited me out to a thing that is, I believe they call it Midrash, where they get together to discuss doctrines pertaining to the law, and they debate them. And they asked if I would come. They were obviously aware that I disagreed with some of the things or some of the focuses of their church. And so they asked me to come and debate with them there. And so I asked a number of times, are you sure you're, you're, you're asking me to come and argue with you at your Bible study? And they insisted that's what they were doing. And so I did that for about three months. And at the end of three months, it just seemed like uh, it had run its course and it wasn't profitable anymore. Then about six months after that, I got a call from these guys again saying, we have a preacher from Seattle who is coming out to our church. And he's in kind of an itinerant preacher. He does the circuit and he's fluent in Hebrew. He's an expert in the law. And we would like you to come and debate with him in front of some of the elders of our church and our whole group and everyone that wants to attend. And so I agreed to do that, and we had, it was a good time. We had quite a, quite a lively debate. I don't think the elders of their church uh, cared for me much, but this fellow from Seattle and I, we had a good debate, and, um, and uh, there was no animosity, no whatever, but I, I found all these people had a very difficult time upholding the way they were handling the law with what the scriptures say, Old Testament and New. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to maintain this unhealthy focus on the Mosaic Law and the Old Covenant when you have the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews and especially the book of Galatians in your Bible. And so it's a very large topic. Uh, I didn't have a whole ton of time to, pre- to prepare for today. Uh, I was sharing with Kevin, my mind has just been racked with all the things that uh, I've been studying on this and so on, and just managed to get some notes together finally this morning. So I just want to speak, I guess, primarily to what our Bible tells us about the law and how we are to handle it not specifically any church or any congregation, because I believe the warnings in the Bible about how we handle the law are very sober. They are very serious, and they apply to all of us, whether we go to a church that is overtly or 
overly focused on the Mosaic Law, it doesn't matter. I believe that all of us can be tempted to have a little bit of uh, Pharisee inside of us from time to time. And I hope to share some of these warnings with you this morning. But the first thing I want to do is just give a fast overview beginning at the Garden of Eden and moving forward. It is a hard study to understand how the law fits through the different dispensations. I am not a covenant theologian guy. I am more of a dispensationalist. I do believe that God's law has been there from the beginning. And I believe it will be there right to the very end. I also believe that God has demanded total and perfect obedience to it from the beginning and will right to the very end. But I do believe that there's been different dispensations. I believe there have been different ways as God has revealed his plan of salvation more and more through time as to how we are interacting with God and his law. And I think that's where sometimes a lot of the confusion comes from. In the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve everything. He told them, it's all yours. Only one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat. And so you know the story. Satan came to Eve and deceived her and her husband, Adam, afterwards, and convinced them to follow the flesh, basically. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And they took it, and they ate, and they fell. They broke the commandment, and God said to them, the day you break this commandment, you die. And there was uh, death in the garden that day. It's important to note that death in the Bible might have a different meaning than what you're familiar with. When we hear the word death, we just think of not existing anymore, stop breathing. But the primary meaning of the word death in the Bible means separation. When you physically die, your body and soul are separated. When spiritual death came, there was a separation between us and God. And so after the fall, when Adam and Eve heard God coming, they did not run to God to make it right, as many in our day would proclaim. As a matter of fact, they did the total opposite. When they heard God coming, they turned and ran and hid. But when God sought them out and found them, there was a couple things that God addressed uh, with them immediately. He gave them hope. It was the first relaying from God to man of the promise of salvation, the promise of the gospel that was coming. But he also dealt with their shame there. Can anyone tell me what, after the fall, what Adam and Eve told God their greatest fear was? Does anyone remember? God had told them that the day they ate of that fruit, they would be dead. They would die. 
So God is coming to them with a death sentence basically in his hand. And so you would assume that that would be Adam and Eve's greatest fear. But that's not what Adam and Eve told God their great fear was when God approached. Anyone remember? Nakedness. In the previous chapter, it said they were both naked and they were not ashamed. When Adam and Eve, before the fall, they were perfectly okay with it. And immediately after the fall, it became their greatest fear. And the Bible goes on to talk a lot about covering from then to the end. In Clay's prayer, he talked about us needing robes of white. Before God, we need to be covered. Mankind is the only creature on earth that needs clothes. Animals don't sin. We do. And that is why we need covering. The Hebrew word for covering is kafir, And that's where the word atonement comes from. The root of the word atonement actually means to cover with tar. And that's what God did with the ark, right? And the reason why that fits is because of the sin of mankind. God sent a judgment of the flood on the world. But he took Noah and his family and put them on the inside. And what the tar, what the pitch did on the outside was it kept the judgment of God away. And that's what happened in the garden. A lot of people like to criticize Adam and Eve for for attempting man-made works by covering themselves. But actually they did what they knew to do. They felt shame and they covered themselves. But God in his mercy gave them skins instead of ones made of fig leaves, a more apt covering. And so in the Bible, we know of two coverings that are absolutely essential for us as sinners before God. The first is we need our sins covered. And the second one that I'm going to be dealing with primarily today is we need the law covered. And we're going to get to that. Further on down the line comes Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. In the chapter before, it said the people of the world were coming together to build a tower to heaven to make themselves a great nation and get themselves a great name. And so God came down and scattered them. And in the next chapter, it says that he calls Abraham. Now, Abraham's dad was an idol worshiper. There's no mention in the Bible of anything that Abraham did to make himself worthy of this calling. It appears it's a calling of grace. In Genesis 12, 1, we read, Now the Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. By the way, it's at the end of this chapter that Abraham finds himself out in the desert during a famine, 
and finds himself running into the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. And a lot of people mistake his encounter with Pharaoh um, as a sin on Abraham's part. Uh, they believe that he was lying about Sarah and lying about his sister. They, they miss the main point of Abraham's interaction with Pharaoh. The reason we read of Abraham's confrontation with Pharaoh immediately after is so that God could prove to Abraham that he meant this covenant that he made to them. What did we just read? Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And the first guy that Abraham runs into is Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth. And God puts a curse on him and his people because he cursed Abraham and tried to take his wife. The Abrahamic covenant is about three things. It's about land. And if you want to make a note, you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and read about the, it's known as the Palestinian covenant, where the land portion of the Abrahamic covenant is unfolded. The second part is the nation. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And that is unfolded in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But the most important part of the Abrahamic covenant is the blessing part. And although some theologians might disagree from my study, it is my view that the blessing that God promised to Abraham, that he would unconditionally fulfill in Abraham's life, is eventually going to be the new covenant. The gospel is all about the blessing promised to Abraham and how the world would be blessed through Abraham. And we'll get to that in a bit. But it's important to know these things because in the timeline, you have fallen man, you've got a unilateral, unconditional covenant that God makes with Abraham where blessing is promised. But 430 years later, we have the Mosaic Covenant. And what I believe the Mosaic Covenant is, is a period of probation for God's people. It is a time period of 1,400 years where God said to Israel, you can go ahead and prove yourselves. As a matter of fact, that's what Moses told the people of Israel at Sinai. God's come to prove you. Can you keep his commandments and earn the blessing in the flesh? Can you do it without my help? You're on your own. The, the Mosaic law was an external law written on stone tablets and unfolded in the other 603 commands. And they had 1,400 years to try and earn the blessing of God. And they couldn't do it. And so in the time of Christ, when the Pharisees were the main spiritual leaders in Israel, by that time they had dumbed the law down so far that instead of it becoming a tutor, a schoolmaster, driving the people to Christ, they had lowered the bar so far that it was something that they were boasting in themselves. And that is why Christ, when he came, had a great 
amount of contention to have with the people that were mishandling his law. But 1,400 years approximately after the Mosaic Covenant, and it's interesting to note too that when we read about God giving the law to Moses, it's very important that you don't read too fast over Exodus 19 and 20, Sinai. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you know, has anyone, anyone here read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? Great book. Everyone should read that one. Charles Spurgeon read it over 100 times, by the way, cover to cover. It's a great book. And if you've read the book, you remember that when I believe it is faithful as climbing the hill of difficulty, it says that he was overtaken by a man who is as swift as the wind. And that man overtakes him, and faithful says, with a word and a blow, knocked me to the ground. And he said, when I came to myself, I asked him, why did you do that to me? And the man responded, because of the secret inclinations to Adam in your heart. And Faithful tells Christian that this man continued to pummel him. And when Faithful cried out, have mercy on me, the man replied, I don't know how to have mercy. The man that John Bunyan is describing is Moses. He is the the picture of the Mosaic law. And it's a good picture. Because as we're going to read, the law is very, very demanding. And there is no mercy or grace in it. But 1,400 years later, after the Mosaic Covenant, Christ brings in through his death and resurrection, the ratification of a new covenant. The new covenant. Don't let anyone tell you it's just the Mosaic covenant redone. It is not. It is in stark contrast to the Mosaic covenant. It is the new covenant. And just as Deuteronomy 30 and 2 Samuel 7 prophesied the coming of the land and the great nation, Jeremiah 31 is prophetic, and you'll read about Jeremiah 31 later in uh, the book of Hebrews as well. But in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, we read, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant, by the way, the new covenant God made with Israel and with Judah. He did not make it with the Gentiles. That's why it's important if you want to understand how all this stuff works, you need to read through Romans 9 to 11 and understand what it means to be grafted into the, to the natural branch. But through our faith in Christ, our being joined to him, the Gentiles are partaking in this new covenant. He says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, 
I will write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they will teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That is the covenant that Jesus Christ fulfilled when he came and died on the cross and rose again. That is the new covenant that Jesus brought into effect. Psalm 85.10 says that at the cross, mercy and truth kissed one another. That's where Christ in the flesh fulfilled the entire law, all of it. And that word, all of it, is important as we're going to see. He fulfilled it all. And in doing so, he enabled the Father to righteously extend mercy to all those that believe in him. That is why the promise of the new covenant could offer forgiveness and the Holy Spirit coming into the hearts of God's people to enable us to not just observe an external code and be like Pharisees who Jesus said, you are a whitewashed tomb. You are clean on the outside and you are filthy, disgusting on the inside. That is all we are able to do in the flesh pertaining to the law. But in the new covenant, Christ not only forgave, fulfilled the entire law, that righteousness that we can receive through faith in him, but he rose again, we read from Romans 6 to 8, so that he would be the spirit within us that would actually enable us to worship God and obey God in spirit or sincerity and in truth. We don't have time to go into it, but if you want to read more about the passages where it is described how the new covenant replaces the old covenant, probably the best place to go if you want to lead about, read about how that was done legally it would be Hebrews chapter 7 to 10. But the new covenant was ratified at the cross not just to forgive our sins but for, by fulfilling the law for us but also so that he could rise again and the spirit of Christ, Christ himself, could be in us and that we could not only live by the spirit, but also walk in the spirit. And I'd love to talk more about the new covenant. I love studying the new covenant, but our main thing today is to look at the book of Galatians because Galatians is all about a church back in Paul's day that started outright. They started in the spirit, but along the way, along their Christian walk, they decided that they knew better than what the gospel promised. And they were a church that was bewitched, beguiled, fooled into leaving their faith in Christ and receiving from him their righteousness, both justification and sanctification, 
and instead turning back to the law. The reason why the gospel and the law are contrasted so sharply is because of how they work. They are two entirely different economies. In Romans 6.23, you know the verse, it says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That is talking about two different economies. Paul is saying hell will be earned, but heaven can only be given. That is why Paul speaks so harshly against trying to earn your sanctification through that economy of wage. Because it will never happen. And it doesn't matter how you or I feel about our law keeping. What matters is how God feels about our law keeping. And God has made it very clear that our law keeping in the flesh on our own will fall very short. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul said that the gospel was all about the righteousness of God. It's not ours. And as a church that understands the doctrines of grace, we don't need to go there a whole lot. But there are certain things that we need to understand about the gospel. Galatians 1.6, Paul says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which actually isn't even another. You've been removed from him. You want to turn back to the law? That means you are removing yourself from Christ and from the grace that he is offering. With the words that I'm speaking this morning, I hope you see time and again that there is no middle ground. There's no middle-middle where you can claim to be a Christian, claim the benefits of the gospel, and still be going about to establish as Paul says in Romans 10, 1 to 4, your own righteousness. If you attempt to do that, you're not worshiping God in truth. You are in error, and it will avail you of nothing. It will only frustrate the grace of God. I just want to use a few analogies about the gospel. It is so easy for us in the church to go back to the law. A lot of times when churches preach on Romans 6.1, after Paul teaches justification by faith in Christ from Romans chapter 3.21 to the end of chapter 5, Paul begins chapter 6 with what question? He says, what's that? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? What shall we say? But it's interesting that Paul says, what shall we say? See, if you skip ahead to Romans chapter 9, where Paul's antagonists are arguing with him about the doctrine of election, Paul says, well, you will then say to me, you. But in Romans 6, 1, Paul says, what shall we say then? Paul was a Jew. And they were all coming out of 1,400 years of law, oppressive law, bondage to law. And all of a sudden, Christ shows up, 
fulfilling all these promises of the gospel. And as John MacArthur says in the book of Romans chapter 9, where you've got weak brothers and strong brothers, in the, in the Roman church you've got people, Jewish people reluctantly trying to put out the coals of the Mosaic law. But in the church of Galatia, John MacArthur remarks that the reason why Paul is so angry in this letter to the Galatians is because they are raking the coals up. They're trying to start the fire again. Two churches passing each other on the highway. One's going one direction, one's going the other. A theologian from Moscow, Idaho, Douglas Wilson, made a very, uh, I think, uh, insightful comment. He said, the good news, or the gospel, is the difference between good news and good advice. See, if you study the the Hebrew roots of the word law, it's, it's that, it's advice. It's external advice. It's a guide. Do this, don't do that. But that's not what the good news is. It's not just advice. It's not an external code using outward pressure on you to conform. Doug Wilson explains it this way. He says, you're sitting in your university class or your high school desk, and you've got a huge exam coming up, and the teacher instructs you to make sure you study so that you don't fail. And she gives pointers on studying and what parts to study more than others. And she's giving you advice. And she's encouraging you to do it, to pass the test. And the day of the final comes and you're nervous and you can't keep your thoughts straight. And you're forgetting the things that you studied and you're sweating and you're not writing. And the teacher comes by and she sees your nervousness and she gives you more good advice and says, settle down. Relax, try and remember what you learned. You've got to pass this test. That's good advice. But good news is if the teacher says, according to Doug Wilson, scoot over. I'm going to write the test for you. And some people, when they hear that, it upsets them. Just like it upsets some people when they hear Romans 6, 1, they will say, what an evil question to say, what shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? But have you ever considered this, that if you share the gospel with people and are never asked the same question that Paul was in Romans 6, 1, maybe you're not really preaching the gospel like the apostle Paul did. Paul's gospel was an amazing grace gospel. So amazing that it brought out questions like Romans 6.1. And that is why Paul says in Galatians 1.6, I am marveled that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into something else. The gospel is about God saying, slide over, I'll take the test for you. It's also like a dad at home with his children. Growing up, our dads hopefully didn't just put a list of rules 
on the wall and disappear and say, good luck. But if you don't pass, if you don't keep them, you'll be punted out of the house. The gospel is like your dad being there with you. That's why Paul is stressing in the New Testament what it is to walk in the Spirit. Jesus said, apart from me, you can't do anything. You need God with you. My six-year-old Daniel has received some uh, correction and admonition, as did little Nathan yesterday. I was studying for this in the house, and I'd asked them to be quiet because little Joel was sleeping, and uh, when they came up to the screen door and gave it about five slams with the hand and yanked it open and gave it a slam, they did get some uh, admonition from Dad, but they weren't left alone with a, a list on the wall. And so the gospel is good news in the sense that Christ fulfilled it all, but it's also good news in the sense that the Spirit of Christ is always with us, exhorting, admonishing us in how to keep the law. In Galatians 2.4, Paul says that false brethren came in secretly to spy out our liberty that we have in Christ that they could bring us into bondage. Don't take lightly the schemes of the devil. I was at a prison in Angola, Louisiana, a couple years ago, and one of the inmates gave a sermon on the schemes of the devil, and I'd never thought about it how he put it. He said, have you considered that the devil is actually scheming? He's not going with the flow. He has you or your congregation in its sights, and he is actually scheming. That means taking the time to plan cleverly how to take you down. False brethren came in secretly to spy out the liberty and try and draw them away from the gospel back to the law. In 2.11, Paul says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Paul's taken this stuff seriously. This isn't just an optional third option. You know, grace, law, or this hybrid that Peter seems to have embraced by sitting with the Gentiles when the Jews aren't around, but when they come, I'll buckle to the pressure and I'll try and externally look like I'm keeping their law happy, but then when they leave, I'll go back to it. It's a big deal. According to Paul, this was huge and was confronted. Paul confronted him to his face because he needed to be blamed. And this false this hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy means to put a mask on, to feign something that you don't believe in. A lot of Christians beat themselves up. They think that they're hypocrites if they don't keep the law perfect. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you are just putting on a mask and faking it the whole way. You don't, you don't care about God's law. You don't care about him. You don't love him. You don't care about his righteousness, but you are putting on a good show. Paul talks about that a lot, putting on a fair show. That's why Paul said, I'm not a servant of men. I'm not a man pleaser. I'm a God pleaser. Because if it's all about serving, looking good for people, if you do what you do to look good on Sunday 
or when other Christians are around, you've got a problem. You're not worshiping God in spirit, in sincerity, or in truth. I always like useless trivia. The word sincere comes from two words in the Latin that means no wax. The old pottery dealers would put their pottery together and paint it. And if they cracked it along the way, instead of throwing out all this time and work, they would wax it and repaint it. And so the genuine good pottery dealers would let you hold their stuff up to the sun and they would put a sign out front that said, Sign Sarah, no wax. What you see is what you get. And apart from the Holy Spirit, as we read about in the New Covenant, the promise of the New Covenant, with us in the flesh, that is impossible. In 2.16, Paul says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. We cannot earn anything through the works of the flesh. If Mr. Lackey is caught speeding on the way home from church and the police officer says you owe us $175 for going 65 in a 50 zone, and Kevin says, that's all right, you can put your ticket away because I went 50 all last week. It doesn't mean nothing. The Bible says we are unprofitable servants. When you obey the law, you're not giving God a thing. You are only doing what you owe. You are only doing what God demands of you. If you don't think that we can be deceived into going back to the law like the Galatians did, think about how many times you have done that in your own mind when you have fallen short and you've gone back to that balance sheet and considered good things that you've done at home, in the family, at church. When you fall short, you look to Christ on the cross. You don't look to yourself. You have no cash. Paul says in Galatians 2.18 and 19, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I would make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. The best place to see an explanation of that is in Romans chapter 7. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she be married to another, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband is dead, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brothers, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. A few things to note here. Christ in this passage is both husbands. You were bound to the law. 
And so Christ took us on himself when he fulfilled it and then was nailed to the cross. We were joined to him then. That's what Paul says here. That's how we become dead to the law is by the body of Christ. But when he was resurrected, died once and is now resurrected, we are now joined to the resurrected Christ. That is why we don't have to go back to the Mosaic law. We've been freed from it. Christ fulfilled it all. And when he died, we died with him. As we'll see in a bit in Romans chapter 6. That's what Paul is saying here. And I hope I'm not getting too heavy or technical on this stuff, but I, I'm the kind of person that I, I, I need to understand these things because if someone says, you know, just be a nice guy and hope for the best, like the chief rabbi at the synagogue in Regina told my Bible study group one year, it's a little bit disconcerting because you know, you know that won't cut it. And that's why Paul wrote these things for us to know. Then we come to that famous passage in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I am crucified with Christ. When he died, I died with him. That's what God has declared legally. That's what happened. You put your faith in Christ, that's what happened. Nevertheless, I am alive. But it's not me. There's life, relation, communion with God. This life that I'm living, it's not because of me. The flesh will never be reformed. It'll never be good. Your flesh will never be good. It never gets better. The only way to live the victorious Christian life is to understand that your flesh is, needs to be crucified. And the life that is in you is the life of Christ himself that you partake in through faith. Isn't that what Paul said? In Romans 7, there's nothing good in the flesh. And that's coming from a super apostle. So don't ever be scared to admit that. But Paul said that if we think that righteousness can come through our obedience to the law, then you are frustrating the grace of God. And he died in vain. I've got to go back and explain what I'm saying here again. In no way am I saying that in the gospel we are free to do whatever we want. Uh, years ago I heard a fellow in a documentary on the Vikings of all things, he ended his documentary, a Christian guy, with a very neat statement. He said, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. It's the result of doing what's right. The freedom that we have in Christ is that is, not only does he pay off all the debt and make us free from all threat and condemnation of the law, but then his spirit comes in and instead of my little guy Daniel having to keep running to the hallway and check the list and the code to see if he's doing what right, doing what's right. I'm walking with him and I'm teaching him and I'm explaining and I'm showing him because no one knows the law of God better than Christ. If his spirit is in, in you, 
and he is guiding you and you're led by the spirit, you don't need the external code. You need Christ and you need his spirit. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? This only would I learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, this is important, having begun in the Spirit, that you will now be made perfect in the flesh? A lot of people think the Galatian heresies, that they thought they could justify themselves by works, and everyone discounts the book. I don't do that. I believe that Christ had to die on the cross for my sins. Therefore, I'm home free and Galatians has nothing to say to me. It's not what Paul's saying here. That's not what the Galatian church was doing. Are you so foolish that you did begin in the spirit and now think that you can perfect yourself in the flesh? Go back to that wage. I do this. God, you give me the blessing. Look at I'm doing this. I'm keeping this command. I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing. Chapter 3. Even as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before, what? The gospel. Unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. You remember the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis 12. In Galatians 3, 8, Paul is saying that was the gospel being preached to Abraham. In you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And the Abrahamic covenant was not a covenant of works like the Mosaic covenant. Some people try and say it was, but do you remember the ceremony? The Abrahamic covenant ceremony, it's a fascinating thing. God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And so I want you to get the, cov- the, the ceremony ready. And so you remember Abraham took those birds and animals and what did he do? He cut them in half and he put one half on here and one half on there and uh, from his Chaldean culture, that's how they made covenants. They didn't have lawyers that could sue you when you signed something and didn't pay up. And so this was the way they did covenants. And the, the two parties that engaged in the covenant walked through the animals that were cut in half. And basically what they were saying is, if I don't keep this covenant, then let what happened to these animals be done to me? It was a serious thing. But do you remember what happened when the time to put the covenant into effect came. What happened to Abraham? What did God do to Abraham? He put him to sleep. He set him aside and put him to sleep. And then it says that two, which two things walk through the middle of the animals and birds? A flaming, a smoking furnace and a lamp. Now it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible who they are, but I believe it's the Father and the Son. At Mount Sinai, it says that when God descended on Sinai, the thing shook and it smoked like a furnace. The wrath of the Father, the justness and the wrath and the law of the Father, he pictured as a smoking furnace. Where do we read about a lamp? 
the churches in Revelation, it says that Christ walked through the churches as a lamp. In Matthew chapter 26, I'm, I'm jumping around a bit because I'm just following Paul's awesome outline in Galatians here. In Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28, it says, And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, or New Covenant, which is, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. <clears throat> it might be new to some of you this morning that when you take communion after the service and you drink of the cup, that's what Jesus said it was. He said the cup, his blood, is the new covenant which had to be shed so that your sins could be forgiven and that the Holy Spirit could indwell you. The Holy Spirit could never indwell us until our sins were taken away. It's also interesting that when the high priest Melchizedek met Abraham, what did Melchizedek come bringing to Abraham? Remember? Bread and wine. It's kind of a picture of the first communion service. See, in Psalms it says that Christ is the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, before the Levitical priesthood. Christ is even above the law, the Levitical law, the Mosaic law. He is not bound by it. Now, we come to a, an important passage. How long have I been going for? When did I start? Does anyone care? Just, just start. Just start doing this. If it's, I'm going to try and wrap up quick here. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. No man is justified by the law in the sight of God. The just have to live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that wants to do them has to live in them. In Hebrews 12, Eighteen to twenty-one. For you are not come unto the mount, speaking of Sinai, that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. If you think that you can come to God through the law, that you can earn his blessing, that's what it's all about, Genesis 12, to get the blessing of God. 1,400 years of Mosaic Covenant, you can try and do it on your own. Now we're in the new covenant where God says, I will. That's what separates those two covenants 
In the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant, God said to the people, if you do this, then there will be blessing. But if you do this, then there will be cursing. The New Covenant, in Jeremiah 31, God said, I will do these things in you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you so that you will will and do according to his good pleasure. In Exodus 19, when God gave the law to Moses, God said to them, you've seen how I've delivered you out of Egypt. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you should be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And what's the response? And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. That is, I'm sorry if you sing them, but that is why I hate modern church music. It is full of declarations that say, I'll do it. And if they mean they'll do it through the Holy Spirit of God, that's great, but sometimes... It doesn't seem that way. And in 16 and 18, as we read in Hebrews, and it came to pass on the third day that there were thunder, lightning, thick cloud on the mountain, the voice of the trumpet exceedingly loud so that all the people shook. They trembled with fear. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by a voice. People were terrified. This trumpet is screaming louder and louder. There's thunder, there's lightning, there is smoke and God is giving the people of Israel a very clear picture that I hope we are all getting clear in our day. God is unapproachable by the law. When God the Father said, this is my son with who I am well pleased, to Peter, be quiet and listen to him. That's what we need to do. Uh, we can't come to God. You cannot approach the Father but through the Son. Jesus could have approached Sinai. The people of Israel and the priests couldn't even touch it. God said, you even touch this hill and you will be thrust through with a dart. You will be stoned on the spot. You don't come near me because you are sinful, you are wicked, and you are unclean. There's a verse in Hebrews chapter 1 that I always find interesting. Hebrews 1.9 says, Speaking of Jesus, thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. What does that say by default about you and me? It says that we don't love righteousness and we don't hate wickedness. We need Christ. We need his spirit 
if we would fulfill the law. In Romans 6, Paul says that our baptism was a baptism into Christ. You know, in our day, so many people hesitate to be baptized because the church is now teaching people with its Arminian philosophies that you have to die to sin and the world and to self and all these things, and then we'll dunk you. Clean yourself up, do it all, do the repentance, and then we'll give you a baptism of repentance. And that's why people are reluctant to get baptized. It's not what Paul says baptism is all about. Every time Paul talks about our being baptized, it says we are baptized into Christ and into his death. It is not our death. It is Christ's. And that's what our baptism is all about. Turn over to Acts chapter 19. Oh, where's this verse? In Acts 19. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, verse 1, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as even heard whether there is a Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John truly baptized with the baptism of repentance. That was an old covenant baptism. Then Paul said unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after. Jesus Christ, when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's two different baptisms. You don't need to turn there, but in Exodus 24... Verses 6 to 8, And Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. It said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. That's a baptism of repentance. Get sprinkled, make a promise to God that you'll do better, that you'll keep the law in the flesh, that you'll do it on your own. And within days, you're worshiping a golden calf. In Exodus chapter 33... I'm not going to read all this, but you're familiar with the story when Moses said to God, show me your glory. And what did God say? He he said to Moses, I will, but where did Moses have to stand? We sing a hymn about it all the time. Rock of ages cleft for me. That's kind of an old, I believe, an Old Testament picture of what being baptized into Christ is, into his death. You see, when God the Father passed by Moses, he had to be hidden. He had to be shielded from the wrath of God 
instead of a sprinkling of repentance and saying, I'll do better, Moses, God showed Moses, you need a lot more than that. You need to be hidden in a rock when I come by, or you are toast. Anybody. That is baptism into Christ. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In Galatians 4.16, I'm skipping ahead a bit. In Galatians 4.16, Paul says to the church there, Am I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. There are a lot of people in the church that do not want to hear this. No one likes to be called a charity case. No one likes to be told that their flesh is entirely wicked and can do nothing to earn God's favor. That notion is repulsive to many people. And it was repulsive to the Pharisees, and that's why Jesus had so many contentions with them. Even think of the story of the uh, prodigal and the elder son. In the song we sang by John Newton earlier, Amazing Grace, that line always confused me when John Newton said, It was grace that taught my heart to fear. But it was grace that my fears relieved. When the prodigal son was walking back to his dad, I, I, I always think of that and I think, what a terrifying walk. He is covered in pig crap. He has squandered everything that his dad gave him. He has left his father's presence and he has done everything wrong. He has sinned greatly. And I think that was a scary walk. And that's why when I began teaching Romans years ago, the first thing I did for two Sundays is just talk about the word grace and what it actually means. And that there is no merit in the word. And if there's any merit in anything that you do before God, you don't understand what the word grace means yet. But grace is scary. And to John Newton, the slave trader, I think he understood that grace is scary. When you are walking back to your father in that condition with empty hands and nothing but sin, it's terrifying. But when the grace of God pulls up his robe and bares his legs, which was the biggest embarrassment a Jewish man could do, and actually runs to this rebellious waster. That's what prodigal means, waster. I mean, the Pharisees heard this story and they thought it was the craziest thing they'd ever heard. Because to their mindsets that are in that law economy, you do this, you get blessing, you do that, you get the curse. They couldn't understand it. And I don't know if they perceived that Jesus was painting a picture of them when he explained the elder brother. That was the Pharisees. And we sit in church sometimes with our uh, nice clean clothes and we look good and most of us maybe have jobs and we're keeping the law our best and we're walking in the spirit and then sometimes people come along that are just not quite there yet. 
and it's easy to be like the elder brother. When your heart has not been softened and made flesh by the Holy Spirit of the new covenant, two things happen. If you haven't experienced the new covenant and the filling of the Spirit, you love yourself and you tend to be very critical of others. Whereas when the Spirit of God comes into your life, in Ezekiel 36, it says that when you start to engage and partake in the new covenant and the Holy Spirit comes into you, do you know what it says at the end of that description? It says you will loathe your own ways. You will start to see yourself how you really are, like the prodigal did. Without the Holy Spirit in our lives, we will be like the Pharisee, thanking God that we are not like that tax collector. I think the favorite sermon I ever did was on uh, Samson when our church I was attending years ago did a series on Hebrews 11 and the Hall of Faith. And I asked them if anyone was preaching on Samson and they kind of laughed and said, of course not. That's an interesting remark. And I'll never forget it. That Sunday morning, five minutes before I was to give my sermon, one of the deacons in the church told me that he thought it was a mistake that Samson was even in the chapter. It was fascinating. But what I, what I saw as I studied Samson is that the guy is such an awesome... If, if you ever invite me back, I'd love to share my Samson sermon with you, but... <clears throat> He's an incredible man of faith. He's the only guy in the Bible other than Christ that no one ever helped when God called him to begin the deliverance of Israel. Not one time is it ever recorded that anyone ever helped him. Opposed by everybody. And not once did God ever promise him strength. Did you know that? He just said, I want you to begin Israel's deliverance. Just step out and do it by yourself against this incredibly wicked and cruel people, these enemies of Israel and enemies of God. And he did it. But see, people look at Delilah and say, you're out. You're not a good enough law keeper in my books. So I discount you. As a matter of fact, one of the elders at John MacArthur's church did a series in, uh, entitled Samson, How to Fail as a Son. And in his sermon, he, he calls Samson the biggest failure in the entire Bible. It's fascinating. We can so easily lose track of whose righteousness is the power of God unto salvation in the gospel. Probably the most important verse, in my opinion, in the book of Galatians is chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you hear the law? Can anyone tell me? I have to cover this, but this part's pretty cool. Can anyone tell me the significance of an Old Testament town named Shechem? Anyone familiar with Shechem? 
There's something very interesting about that town. I'll tell you. Because I had the advantage of studying for this sermon and you guys didn't. Shechem was a town located kind of in a little valley in between two mountains. And one of the mountains to the south was called Mount Gerizim. And the mountain to the north was Mount Ebal. Ringing a bell yet? I'm going to read it. Go to, go to Joshua chapter 8. This is very interesting stuff. I know it's all interesting, but this stuff is... I found this very interesting. So, Moses leads the people up to the border of the promised land. And you remember, you remember God said that Moses couldn't go into it. I I have to share this with you because when I come across things like this that bug me, I cannot sleep. I cannot let them go until I get them figured out. Do you remember the story? Moses has been taking this people of hundreds of thousands through the desert for 40 years, and he said, I don't even want to do it. God, how long do I have to lead this stiff-necked people? And God said, until you die. Probably not the answer he was looking for. But near the end, the people are thirsty. They're in a desert. They're in a wilderness. And this is what God told Moses to do. I'm flipping back to Numbers chapter 20, verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, wait, 8. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, verse 7, and said, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with the rod smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. Moses is leading this rebellious, stiff-necked people. They are saying we should have stayed in Egypt. God's just brought us out to kill her, and we don't like you, and we don't trust you, and we don't trust God, and we're dying of thirst out here. A lot of pressure. And God says to Moses, take your staff and go speak to the rock. Paul says that the law was given to increase transgressions, to show what's in your heart, not to take them away. Why did God tell Moses to grab his staff if he only wanted him to speak to the rock? So Moses, with his staff in hand that God told him to take, hits the rock, and out comes the water. And what does God say to Moses in, chap- in verse 12? 
And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, Because you believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. After 40 years of speaking face to face with God and leading the nation of Israel, he hits a rock to bring water out of it instead of speaking to it. And God says, you're out. If we think we can toy with God's commands and his law, we are so mistaken. By the way, that troubled me so much that I just, I, I prayed years ago and I prayed and I said, God, this, this really bugs me. After all Moses went through, why on earth, at the end of 40 years, would you take him to the top of the mountain to see the promised land and not let him go into it? And I believe the answer that God gave me, <clears throat> and I've never read this in a book, so don't quote me, I'm not being dogmatic, but Moses is the personification of the law. And I believe what God wanted us to see is that the law can get you out of Egypt and wander you around in the desert, but the law cannot get you into the promised land. It can bring you right to the cusp, but it won't get you in. In Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. So now they've uh, they defeated Jericho. They had the problem with Achan. They regrouped. The, Achan and his family came under God's judgment for taking that, the clothing. Him and his family are stoned. They're killed. God's wrath is appeased. They go up against the king of Ai and are victorious. And then Joshua takes the people of Israel to Shechem, in between these two mountains. Joshua, then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord of God in Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel to do in the book of Moses, in the law of Moses. An altar of whole stones over which no man has lifted any iron, and they offered thereon burnt offerings unto the Lord that sacrificed and sacrificed peace offerings. And he, Joshua, wrote there upon the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. And half of Israel was put on Mount Gerizim, and half on Mount Ebal as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word, not a single word, of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua read not before all the congregation of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were amongst them. Joshua took the people of Israel, the Shechem, in between two mountains. 
And Mount Ebal to the north, if you Google pictures of it, is like covered in limestone. It is barren. There is nothing on it. Right across the valley to the south, facing towards Jerusalem, is Mount Gerizim. And it is totally green and lush. It's quite a fascinating picture. And what God told Israel is he put half on Ebal and half on Gerizim. And on the Ebal that had no, plant, no plants, no nothing, it was totally barren, that was a picture of the curse that would come on you if you did not obey the law. And on Gerizim, the lush mountain full of fruit and vegetation, he said, that's the Mount of Blessing. If you do good blessing, if you do bad, the curse. What's interesting is that Joshua put the altar and wrote the law on which mountain? Ebal. That's the place that needed it. The mountain of cursing is the one that had the altar that would contain the sacrifice to God and the law. The law was against them. And this is important because this is probably where Paul is getting his stuff in Galatians from. If you want to be under the law, you are going to have to fulfill it all. This last verse is not talking about family integrated church where it says every man, woman, child, and stranger, you will all be there and you will hear every single word that Moses said. You want to be under the law? Every single one of you will hear every single word. And that's what I demand. We are called to stand fast in the liberty that we have in Christ and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And this law, going back to the law, I'm not talking about going back to ceremonial stuff. In Romans 7, Paul said, I was alive once until the commandment came not to covet. That's not abstract out in the 613. That's one of the 10, okay? In Luke 12, 1, Jesus warned his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That is what we will have if we try and keep the law without the Holy Spirit. If we try and do it in the flesh, if our focus is the law and earning that blessing through the works of the law and obedience in the flesh, that's what we will look like. Jesus said to them, every time you make a convert, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. He said, you flatter me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Have you ever felt like that? I have. I have quite a bit. I've struggled with this for years. I have studied this for years. I have spent hundreds of hours poring over these passages how do we do this? How do we not be a Pharisee? How do we not be just bitter and filthy on the inside while keeping a clean outer appearance? Whitewashed. The Pharisees made spiritual death look pretty, didn't they? I don't want to get too carnal on you, but there was a song back in the 80s. I can't remember the group. 
where a guy sings about a girl he met that was quite good looking, but he found out she wasn't that nice later. And he said of her, she ain't pretty, she just looks that way. I think that's a good description of, of God's people when we try and walk in the flesh. It won't be sincere. There'll be wax everywhere, masks hiding what we really are. We need the Spirit. You remember Jesus told his disciples before he went to the cross, he said, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Even Adam and Eve in the garden, their flesh was weak. They just wanted to serve itself. That's what weak means. It, there's no restraint to it. It just wants its own thing and doesn't care about God's law. But the Spirit is willing. If you be led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You aren't under the law. We've been delivered from it. Christ was under the law. He fulfilled the law. When he died, you died with him. Now he lives in you and calls you to serve in newness of his spirit, not in the oldness of the external letter. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, if we're born again, if we live by the Spirit, Paul says, now let us also walk in the Spirit. I confess I spent many, many years scared of walking in the Spirit with God. I believed that if I walked in the Spirit and really submitted to Him, that He would make me do everything that I hated. <clears throat> and... Uh, I have had a super rough month. I won't get into the details, but I've probably had the most difficult month. Uh, it's crazy, the stuff that's happened to me in the last month. That I, I cannot remember anything like this. And, you know, years ago I asked God, why did you institute fasting? And I believe God shared with me that it starves the flesh. The spirit and the flesh are always at war, right? And so when you fast, the flesh is starved and it strengthens the spirit. But I believe God gives us the bread of affliction to overwhelm the flesh. And if you keep trying to keep the law apart from Christ, he might just send some of that your way. But what I learned in the last little while is that one of necessity turned back to God out of desperation. I just cannot believe the encouragement and the peace that I have had in the last month in the midst of such crazy circumstances. I just close with this. Be warned and be careful. When Jesus said to his disciples, one of you will betray me, they all asked, is it I? Don't be so proud that you think it can't be you. It says that the final judgment that the goats will say to the Lord, say, Lord, didn't we? Didn't we? Isn't that amazing? They're at the judgment of God and they are still bartering with their own economy of earning a wage.
The Apostle Paul, before he got saved, was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I believe he had probably had the entire Old Testament memorized. And when he was on his way to Damascus to go kill God's people, God struck Paul with blindness, then sent him to his enemy's house where he was fed a meal, where he received his sight back, and then was cut loose without being a single hair in his head harmed. Do you remember when Elisha's servant was terrified of the enemies of God surrounding them? And Elisha said, God, open the eyes of my servant that he can see what's going on out there. Do you remember that? And he went out and looked again and he saw the armies of God hovering above Israel's armies. And God struck Israel's enemies blind. They were brought into the middle of the camp. And the king said to Elisha, what, uh, what do we do with these guys? Do we kill them? And Elisha said, no, let's just feed them supper. Gave them some food. They got their sight back in the middle of their enemy camp. And then they were turned loose. I remember years ago teaching a Sunday school class, and it just hit me. That, I mean, that's kind of a coincidence that both those things happened there. I wonder if Paul ever realized that he was God's enemy. He was saturated in law, and he was the enemy of God. Do you hear the law? Every word to every soul. In John 5.45, Jesus says to the Pharisees, don't worry, I won't accuse you. But there's one that will, Moses, the one in whom you trust, he will accuse you. Which set of books will you be judged by at the great white throne judgment? The Bible says one group of people are going to be judged by their works. All of them. It won't be good. The other group are going to be judged simply by their name being written in the Lamb's book of life. You're going to be judged by your works or you're going to be judged by your faith in the one who fulfilled the law and did them all. We needed Christ to cover our sins and our shame like in the garden. And we need Christ now to cover the law. So the Bible says Christ is. He's the propitiation, the mercy seat. Do you remember what was in the Ark of the Covenant in that coffin-shaped box? The tablets of the law. And the Bible says Christ is the seat sprinkled with blood that sits over top and covers it. We need to put our trust in the mercy seat. We need to be hidden in the rock. Will you rush into the holy of holies? Approach boldly the throne of grace and rip the mercy seat off the ark, throwing aside that blood-sprinkled atonement throw aside the mercy seat and walking over it, pull the stone tablets of the law from the ark of God and raise them high to your 
own condemnation. Can you imagine? Hebrews 10.29 says, Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the just shall live by faith. And if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. We are not of them that draw back, but are of them that believe in Christ to the saving of the soul.
I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. These are known as the words of institution, because by them he instituted or began a new covenant in his own life's blood. In these few words, he fulfilled the Old Testament promises, announced present blessings, and prophesied of our future in his kingdom. So, uh, would you please distribute the bread? And when you receive it, would you please hold on to it? And we'll uh, take it together.
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the Lord? Lord, we thank you again uh, for this message um, we heard today from your word, the work and the power of your blood, Christ's blood on the cross for our sins. And we thank you for this table and this time uh, to remember and share this together. Amen. Please uh, come meet with us. We're in the fellowship.